You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Ephesians chapter 1. And when you found your place, let's bow our heads in prayer. Our God and our Father, we pray that through your word that you would inspire in the hearts of your people wonder, love, and praise for our risen Lord. We ask this in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we are going to be departing from the Gospel of John, obviously, this morning, because the next passage in the Gospel of John does not really afford us the opportunity to focus on the resurrection of Christ like we might want to. So we're going to depart from that and jump into the book of Ephesians for a few moments. It's not difficult to find a passage in the New Testament that speaks of the resurrection. The historical reality of the resurrection of Christ is mentioned over a hundred times in the New Testament. So you can almost pick up any book of the New Testament and begin reading and you're going to come across a reference to the resurrection or some implication of the resurrection written out. With a hundred references, really, we could say that our entire New Testament is a book about the resurrection. And all of the books in the New Testament are books about the resurrection. In fact, if it weren't for the resurrection, none of those New Testament books would have been written. And all of the New Testament books, really, in one way or another, either describe the resurrection or they flesh out for us some of the eternal implications of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that the resurrection of Christ is the center of the church's faith, the center of the New Testament. It is really at the center of our worship. It is at the center of all gospel preaching and proclamation. You read through the book of Acts and you will be stunned if you just read through the book of Acts at the preaching of the early church and just look for the references to the resurrection or the exaltation of Christ. And you will find that almost every time the apostles opened their mouths, they were mentioning something about the resurrection of Christ. It's all the way through the New Testament. So today we're jumping off into the book of Ephesians. I want to begin by sort of stating something about the resurrection and the historical implications of it. For those of us who here today have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, repented of our sins and believed upon Him and been born again, there is no need to prove the historical reality of the resurrection to us. We accept that by faith. And I would dare say that even if there were no historical evidence for the resurrection, Christians would believe it based upon the testimony of Scripture itself. All we would need is the fact that God has said it is so, and we would accept that as true and as truth. And we would embrace the reality of it, even if there were no historical evidence for it. Because we would believe the resurrection just based upon the testimony of God. If Scripture has said it, we would embrace it. We would believe it. And we would accept it as true. Now, there's plenty of historical evidence for the resurrection, but I will be honest with you. I trusted Christ and I was born again and I believed that God raised Christ from the dead long before I ever studied the historical case for the resurrection. So for a believer, the historical case for the resurrection does not make or break the case. We believe what God has said. That, by the way, is the mark of a regenerate heart. A regenerate heart takes God at His word and does not ask for any authenticating signs. A regenerate heart simply says, I will believe this because this is what God has testified is true concerning His Son, and so I will believe it. So the heart that has been born again by the Spirit of God reaches out and embraces what Scripture says without any authenticating proof. 
What the historical case for the resurrection does for the Christian is simply encourage our faith. It it makes it more solid. It makes it more robust. It, it livens our heart up as we look at the historical evidence. We say we have a good case for the resurrection. It is the best explanation for all of the evidence. For the unbeliever, no amount of evidence could ever convince them that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The Christian is convinced without any historical evidence And it doesn't matter what the historical evidence, the unbeliever will not be convinced. And by convinced, I mean believing not only in his head that Christ is risen, but in his heart that Christ is risen to the point where he would bow down and embrace Jesus Christ and turn from his sin and embrace the light. The unbeliever whose heart has not been changed by God will not be convinced of the resurrection no matter what evidence is presented to them. You saw this at the case of Jesus, even even in the historical setting itself at the resurrection, right? Caiaphas, Annas, all of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the ones who put him to death. How about the guard that was positioned at the tomb? Did they believe in Christ at the resurrection? They had a front seat for that historical event, didn't they? Were they converted and convinced by it? No, they went in and they accepted money to begin to spread a tale, a lie that Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples while they fell asleep on guard duty. And they began to lie about it. They weren't convinced, and they were sitting right there for it. They saw the angel. They saw the stone rolled away. They were lived through the earthquake. They saw all of it unfold right before their eyes. If you could take an unbeliever back into a time machine and put him at the tomb of Jesus Christ on the day of the resurrection, an unbeliever who loves darkness and hates light would never be convinced, even if he sat there and he watched it unfold with his own eyes, he would walk away and say, there's some other explanation for it. This was a fluke. Or there's, this is not what actually happened. Or I don't even believe my eyes. He would come up with some excuse to justify his love for darkness and his hatred for the light. Because, as we have seen in the Gospel of John, unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence, is it? What is it due to? It's a love for darkness. And because the unbeliever's heart has not been changed by the Spirit of God, he loves his sin so much that no matter what the case is made, no matter what he sees and no matter what he hears, he will embrace his darkness and he will turn from the light and no amount of historical evidence can ever make, can ever change the heart of an unbeliever so that he hates the darkness and he loves the light and wants to turn toward the light. So for a believer, the historical case for the resurrection only serves to encourage us in what we already know from Scripture to be true. But for an unbeliever, the historical case of the resurrection does absolutely nothing because he loves darkness and doesn't care what the truth is as long as he can keep his sin. And until his affections are changed by the Spirit of God, his heart is changed so that he doesn't love darkness anymore, but instead he loves the light and hates his sin until God changes that heart, no matter what the case is, he will never turn from darkness and embrace the light. As an unbeliever... I knew that there were implications to the doctrine of the resurrection. Because all the Christians that I knew, and I went to youth group with a bunch of them, and I was unsaved, all the Christians that I knew talked about the resurrection. They sang about the resurrection. I attended a resurrection Sunday morning breakfast, just like the one we had over at the old church today. And I washed dishes, and I was there for that. And then I went to the church service that followed, and I listened to preaching about the resurrection. And I memorized verses concerning the resurrection. I heard about the resurrection in Sunday school. I heard about the resurrection in Vacation Bible School. And I heard about the resurrection at youth group. And I knew, as an unbeliever, I knew in my mind and in my heart that there was a lot that hinged on the resurrection of Christ. And even as an unbeliever, I understood this is the most significant thing that Christians believe. 
because it is either true or it is false. Does that make sense enough? It's either true or it's false. It either happened or it didn't happen. And I knew as an unbeliever, if it happened, sorry, if it didn't happen, if it is false, then all of these Christians that I'm hanging out with, all of these guys who I call my friends who are believers, they are lying and they are believing a lie and they're singing about a lie and they're preaching a lie and they're worshiping a lie. If Jesus Christ is not risen, then this Christian faith to which I'm being exposed is nothing but a sham and a fraud and a lie and at best a myth. On the other hand, if Jesus Christ is risen from the grave, then I knew that I was in big trouble because I knew that this Jesus, whom I had blasphemed on so many occasions I could not even count, and who I had rebelled against would not be happy with me on Judgment Day. So I knew that a lot came down to whether or not Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And even as an unbeliever, I knew that. There are implications to this, and those implications implicated me. Because I was guilty, and I knew I was guilty. And if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then I also knew, because Scripture said this, that I would have to stand before Him on Judgment Day. And I will tell you something, I did my level best to push that out of my mind and out of my thinking at every opportunity that I could, every Resurrection Sunday that I could, until God finally saved me. Well, there are implications to the resurrection, and they are eternal, and they are far-reaching, and they affect you. And today we're going to look at some of those in Ephesians chapter 1, at the very end of the chapter, verses 19 through the end of the chapter, Ephesians 1. Now we're kind of parachuting into the middle of a book, which we really don't like to do around here. We don't like to just kind of take a passage and sort of jump into it. So I need to set up a little bit of the context in the book of Ephesians, which I'll kind of do through a couple of, just a couple of key points to kind of catch us up to what we would have studied and learned had we been around from the beginning of the book of Ephesians if we had studied this from verse 1. So in the book of Ephesians, the first half of the book of Ephesians really is theologically based. It is explaining salvation. What salvation is, how it comes to us, who is responsible for it, who gets glory for it, and the basis of that salvation, that it is grace. And some of the implications of salvation are worked out in chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 6 are really a list of imperatives and commands as the Apostle Paul begins to describe what salvation means as you and I walk together and live together in harmony and as we walk out our Christian life in this world. So we're in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 begins with really this profusion of praise from the Apostle Paul. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We bless the God and Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, he is giving praise to God for all of the spiritual blessings that he has received. And then he goes on to list these in one long, grammatically incorrect, but wonderful sentence that runs on all the way through the end of verse 14. With no punctuation, no breaks, no end of the sentence, nothing. It's just this profusion of phrase after phrase of the blessings and, uh, that God has given to his people for which we give him thanks and praise him. First of all is the blessing of election, just as he chose us, verse 4, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons. So you have election, you have predestination, you have adoption as sons. It is all according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, verse 6, which he freely bestowed on us. So grace is another spiritual blessing we get. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's another spiritual blessing. He has bought us out of the marketplace of sin. He has redeemed us. 
Uh, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's another spiritual blessing. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will. Another spiritual blessing. According to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, that is in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. This is what God has made known to us, that God is bringing about the summing up of everything in Christ. Christ is preeminent, and God is bringing everything under His administration, under His power, under His authority, so that everything will bow down to Christ. This is God's plan, and this is what He has made known to us. Verse 11, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. That's a spiritual blessing having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the gospel, the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. One long, that's All one sentence in the original. All one sentence. Just phrase after phrase of all these things that God has heaped upon us. It is what God has chosen to give to His people. He has elected us. He has predestined us to this salvation, to forgiveness. He has predestined us to adoption as sons. He has predestined us to an inheritance. And He has predestined our inheritance to us. All of this He has given according to His grace. And it is all according to the kind intention of His will, verse 5. It's His will, verse 11. He works all of these things after the counsel of God's will. It's not what you will. It's not what I will. It's not what any of us corporately will. It's not even what God foresees we will will. It's His will. And He works all of this after the counsel of His will. Why has He done this? Three times in the passage, the Apostle Paul says, it is to praise of His glorious grace so that God would be glorified. All of this is God's doing. All of this salvation is God's doing so that He would receive the glory and that you and I would have no share whatsoever in the glory. And we get a share in everything else. Election, predestination, adoption, forgiveness, redemption, the sealing of the Spirit, belief in the gospel of the truth and the salvation, and make known the mystery of His will, all of this grace that He has lavished upon us. We share in all of that, but the one thing that we do not share in is His glory. And he gets all of that for doing all of that for us. Now after listing all of those spiritual blessings, the Apostle Paul gets to the end of verse 14, and he bursts forth in prayer, from praise to prayer. Verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers. Now here is what he prays, and this is what brings us to the passage we're going to look at this morning. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that your spiritual eyes might be opened and that God would enlighten you so that you might know. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you might know three things. What is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And the third, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, you notice the, re- the reference to the resurrection, verses 19 and 20? Right? He prays that we might know the surpassing greatness of His power, that power which was demonstrated when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him, 
in, at his right hand in heavenly places. That's what passage we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to notice two things. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates or puts on display for us the power of Christ and the preeminence of Christ. The power of Christ and his preeminence. The power is in verses 19 and 20. One of the things that the Apostle Paul prays that you and I would know is the power of God which works, and I love how verse 19 phrases it, it works toward us who believe. The power of God which works toward us or for us who believe. This is the power of God that the Apostle Paul wants us to know. Do you look at how he describes that power? Verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Notice all those phrases. Power, might, working, and strength. All of those words have to do with God's power, God's energy. It is his working power, working in this sense of doing or accomplishing something. That's the word that the Apostle Paul uses. He uses a word that describes an active power that is actually working and accomplishing something. And then it's almost as if Paul heaps one word upon another. It is the power, it is the working of the strength of his might. You get the idea? Like somebody opened up, it's almost as if Paul opened up a thesaurus. He started looking for words that have to do with power, strength, might, working. He's emphasizing something because he says it four times. What is he emphasizing? God is a mighty God. And he wants you and I and the Ephesians, the eyes of our understanding to be open so that we could see with the eyes of our heart the power of God that is displayed and that power of God which is working, his strength and his might working toward or for us who believe. That is God's power. All of the omnipotent power of God is working for the people on behalf of the people and toward the people who have been described in the first half of this chapter. Those ones who have received the adoption, the redemption, the lavishing of His grace, making known the mystery of His will, the sealing of the Spirit, election, predestination, all of that, those people who have received the forgiveness of sins, listen, the entire panoply of heaven's power, that whole package, is working on and for you. For your good. For your eternal blessing. If you are in Christ and you are described in verses 3 through 14, that mighty strength, that mighty power of God is working toward you who believe. That's amazing to me. All of God's power works on my behalf for my eternal good and for His glory. That power which was put on display when He raised His Son from the dead. That, the resurrection of Christ, is a demonstration of the power of God. Romans 1.4, Paul writes that Christ was declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, Paul says, For indeed He was crucified because of weakness, yet He lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, yet we will live with Him because of the power of God directed toward you. He's speaking of the resurrection. We who are weak, we will live and we will be raised with Christ again because of what? Because of the power of God. What is the guarantee that I will someday rise from the dead or triumph over the grave? You know what the guarantee of that is? The fact that Christ rose from the dead and triumphed over the grave. And God put on display His power in raising His Son from the dead that same power will work toward me and for me to secure on my behalf all of these blessings of God so that I will rise again myself because of the power of God. That same power which was displayed in the resurrection of Christ will again be displayed in the resurrection of all of those who are in Christ. 
Now, here's where this becomes very practical. We read the first half of Ephesians chapter 1, and we may say to ourselves, hold on a second, that's a lot of blessings. Election, predestination, adoption, forgiveness of sins, redemption, the lavishing of His grace, the sealing of the Spirit. That's a lot of stuff. An inheritance that I'm predestined to, and that inheritance is predestined for me. That is a lot of stuff. Is it really possible that God can take a spiritually dead sinner like me, one born in iniquity, one whose heart is darkened and depraved and wicked beyond description, who has sinned and blasphemed against Him and broken all of His law, who has hated Him from the moment that He could remember? Is it possible that God could take a wicked individual such as me and really change my heart, seal me with His Spirit, Give me adoption, make me his son, and give me the inheritance that he has predestined for me in the heavens. Is it really possible that God could take somebody like me and give him all of those blessings? Or is it possible that I might somehow be able to miss that because I have thwarted God's purpose or plan, or because I have resisted it, or because I don't deserve it, or because God might at some point change His mind toward me? Is any of that possible? What is the guarantee that I will receive and have received everything in the first half of Ephesians chapter 1? You know what the guarantee is? His power. Is it possible for God to promise more than He can deliver? Is it possible for God to promise more than He can deliver? It's impossible. He cannot promise more than He can deliver. So if He has promised me all of this, is He able to deliver that? Of course He's able to deliver that. And you and I, we want our eyes of our understanding and our hearts to be open to the fact that our God is powerful to give us everything He has promised to give us. And there is no power in heaven, no power on earth, no power in hell below that can keep Him from keeping His promise and delivering on everything that He has purposed for us. Whatever it is that God has purposed and planned and promised to us, He is able to provide and He can deliver on it because of His power. And because of the mighty working of His strength and His power toward you and I, for us, we can be guaranteed that He will give to us everything that He has promised to those who come, to the ones who are in His Son. That is His guarantee. It is the demonstration of the power of Christ toward those who have believed. One of the, one of the things that we are going to be blessed with also is a resurrected body. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says that God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has to bring everything into subjection to Himself. You and I are going to get glorified, resurrected bodies someday if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you don't get that. You're going to get a body fit for destruction. But if you're in Christ, you're going to get a body fit for a resurrection to live and to dwell with Him for all of eternity, to praise and to glorify Him. It will never decay. It will never pass away. It will never be corrupted. It will never sin. It will never die. never experience pain or suffering or anguish or any of those things. That body is yours, and God has the power to do it. And this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If He is able to do that for His Son, He can do it for you. And He can do it for me. So if He has displayed that power in raising His Son from the dead and lifting Him up and seating Him at the right, at His right hand in heavenly places, then He has adequate power to do the exact same thing for you and I. To give us everything that is reserved for us in the heavenlies. And it comes to us because of the power of God, which was demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. The second thing the resurrection shows us is the preeminence of Christ. His preeminence. Now look at verse 19 and 20 again. Actually, it is in verse 20. This which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There's the thesaurus again. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What is his position like? This one that Christ has been given. He has been exalted. The one who was humbled, who humbled himself by coming here and taking upon him the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So he has condescended or humbled himself to the lowest possible spot of dying on a Roman cross. This is the one whom God has exalted and lifted up. And that exaltation begins with the resurrection. So there are three actions of exaltation in the New Testament that happened to our Lord Jesus Christ in response to his humiliation. It was his resurrection, his ascension, and what we call his exaltation. So the resurrection, which is his triumph over the grave, he was raised in a glorified body. His ascension, 40 days after that, he was he lifted up into heaven, into the clouds, with the angels present there, with the disciples on the mount. You see that in Acts chapter 1. And then there is the exaltation. He was given a position, a seat, and he sat down at the Father's right hand. And there he rules and he reigns, and he is at the Father's right hand in that position of power and preeminence. That is all the exaltation of Christ. And the New Testament writers pack all of that together when they describe the Lord Jesus being raised and then being made both Lord and Christ. Because in our minds and from the perspective of God and the perspective of the New Testament church, all of that is the same thing. It is His exaltation. It begins with the resurrection and He is seated today at the right hand of the Father. He was raised, He ascended, He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And there He sits far above every name that has been named in this age or in the age to come and a position far above every power and dominion. All of the demons are subject to Him. All of the angels are subject to Him. All of the nations of the world are subject to Him. Every king owes his authority to the sovereign Jesus Christ. Every king gets authority because Christ allows him to have authority. And there is coming a day when he will put all of his enemies under his feet. All of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. But there's coming a day when he will crush the nations and he will crush the kings. And he and all of the nations of this world will be the nations of our God and of our, our Christ. Everything will belong to him. He has that position now. But he does not exercise in a visible way all of that authority and dominion that he has. He still allows Satan to do his thing and wicked people to do their things. He tolerates that. He puts up with that. He allows it to happen. But there is coming a day when he will have enough and it will be done. And he will put every enemy under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul describes this. And he says, at the resurrection, each one is going to be in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ that is coming. We get our resurrected bodies with Christ when He comes. Then comes the end, Paul says, when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put into subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. That is the Father, the Father who put everything under Christ. When we say that Christ will have everything put under Him, we're not talking about the Father. The Father is still um, in a position of authority over the Son, equal in nature, but in a position of authority. So the only one that is accepted to that, Christ putting everything under His feet, is the Father. Christ is not going to put the Father in subjection to Him. He's going to put everything else into subjection to Him. And then Paul says this, It is evident that He accepted the one who put all things in subjection under Him. And when all things are subjected to Him, that is the Son, then the Son Himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that is the Father, 
that God may be all and all. That's what's going to happen. From his position of preeminence, he is going to reign until he puts every enemy under his feet. And when he has done that and death is destroyed, he will turn around. He will hand all of that to the Father. He will give all of that to the Father. And we are part of that gift and part of that plan. He rules and he reigns and he is preeminent in his position of power and authority, which he has over every name that will be named, every name that has been named, every name that can be named. Everything is under him. He is preeminent. He is preeminent. And there is coming a day when he will destroy all of his enemies. I promise you that on the authority of Scripture. He will destroy all of his enemies, and he will put everything in subjection under himself. Death being the very last enemy that will be destroyed. And so look at verse 22. And he who put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That's us, believers. We get the benefit of this. He is in a position of power, which is exercised toward us and for us who believe. And he is in a position of preeminence over all things, most of which is the church. And the church is under him. And the church gladly gives to him worship and obedience and homage and praise and adoration and blessing because he is in that position of preeminence and power. And that position of preeminence and power is worked out for your good and for my good. And the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates the power of Christ and the preeminence of Christ. And I say, what are the what are the implications of the practical implications of that for me? Well, let me talk to believers first. First of all, for believers, let me give you a couple of them. We've already talked about this at length, so I won't rehash this, but that is that all of the power of God is for us. Not that we have access to it, not that we command demons or we create things out of thin air. I'm not talking about that. God Himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, and all of the power that He has, that power which was demonstrated in raising the Son from the dead, works on behalf of His people to bring to them all of the blessings that He has promised to them, to bring them into the church and into subjection to Him as His gift to the Father. That power works for us, toward us who believe. There's a second implication for believers, and it is this. Because Christ is in a position of power and preeminence, you and I are obligated to obey Him. Obedience. See, this is what I understood as a Christian, as an unbeliever before I became a Christian. I understood that everything I was being told about the resurrection, if it was true, it would radically change my life. And I was going to have to give up alcohol and girls and lusting, and all of the other stuffs that I held so dear, I would have to give all of that up. Because if He is risen, then there's only one appropriate response for me, and that was for me to bow the knee and to do what He commanded me to do. And if I was going to do that, it would mean that I would have to radically change everything else I was doing. I would have to be obedient to Him. I understood that as an unbeliever. That's why every chance I had to to get the resurrection out of my mind, (laughs) I diligently pursued it. I didn't want to do that. I don't want to give up my darkness. I love the darkness. What's funner than sin? I couldn't think of anything funner than sin. Now I can hardly think of things that I hate more than sin. I hate it because my heart was changed. But I knew that if I were to become a believer, I had one option. Obedience. If He is Lord and He is risen and He is exalted to the right hand of the Father, then I must obey Him. I don't consider whether or not I'm going to obey Him. When He gives me something to do or I find something in His Word, I don't ask myself, should I or should I not do this? 
I don't have that option. If Christ is risen and what Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1 is true, that can never enter into our head. We, he is the master. We are slaves. That is our position. We are slaves. We have no rights, none whatsoever. We can only be obedient. That is our only option, to obey him and to yield and bow the knee to him. And listen, we do it gladly because our hearts have been changed. If the idea of obeying Christ is repulsive to you, it's because your heart hasn't been changed. Just like it was repulsive to me before I got saved. The idea of obeying Christ, I couldn't think of anything more onerous, anything more disgusting and despicable than obeying him. But once my heart was changed, then I wanted to obey him. Now to you here who might be sitting here who are unbelievers and you've never trusted Christ for salvation, here's what this means for you. You will never be able to run from him. You will never be able to run from him. Because you are going to die someday, and he is not. You're not going to be able to outlive him. You can't outsmart him. You can't outpower him. You can't outrun him. And you're going to die someday, and he's going to find you guilty. And you know why he's going to find you guilty? Because you are guilty. Because you are just like I was before I got saved and trusted Christ for salvation. You have heaped up a, a load of sin on your shoulders and on your head for which you will be called to give an account. And he is going to call you into his eternal courtroom and you are going to face the standard of his justice and every lie you have told, every theft you have committed, every idle word you have spoken, every act of blasphemy, every lustful thought, every act of disobedience, every impure motive, everything you have ever thought or said or done that is a violation of God's law will be brought out into the broad daylight of the justice of God's court, and you will stand condemned. And Scripture says that your mouth will be shut because you will have nothing to say on that day. Nothing. Because when the verdict is read, it is going to say guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty on every account. And you will face the wrath of God for your sin. And you will be condemned because you have loved darkness rather than light. And you have heard the truth and you know the truth, and you've been exposed to the truth, and you have read the truth, and you have no excuse for disobeying the truth. But when you disobey the truth, you will be held guilty because you knew the truth and you turned away from it. Because you loved darkness, and you loved your sin, and you hated and resisted the light. And God will hold you guilty and culpable on that day. I can tell you on the testimony of Scripture that the only way you can escape the wrath of God is if you repent of your sin and trust in God's Savior. He offers you clemency. He offers you forgiveness. He has provided an atonement and a sacrifice which has paid the price for sin of all and any who will trust on Him. And He offers you that salvation, not based upon anything that you have done, but based upon what Christ has done on your behalf. You have two choices to make. You can cling to your darkness and resist the light and face the wrath of God for all of eternity for your sin, or you can embrace the Savior and receive all of the blessings that are described in Ephesians chapter 1. And know that the power and the purpose and the plan of God is to secure all of those and has secured all of those on your behalf. But in order to get that, you must repent, which means turn from your sin, turn from darkness to light, and trust and embrace in the sacrifice that paid the price for your sin. And when you do that, I promise you that God will forgive your sin, you'll be adopted into His family, and he will take you to heaven to dwell with him forevermore as his free gift to you. Not because of anything you have done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. That is God's promise. I'll close with this, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. 
In former times, God overlooked men's ignorance. But now He has commanded that all men repent. For God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, and that is Christ. And He has furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. There's coming a judgment day. And God's promise to you is that He will judge every sin, either upon His perfect Son or upon your head for all of eternity. So I beg of you today, on behalf of God, be reconciled to God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for sin, and we praise Him. He is risen again, and He sits forever at the right hand of the Father, having been exalted to that position, high above all names, all principalities, powers, and dominions, and everything that is named in this age and the age to come. What a glorious, gracious, loving, kind Savior, right? Have you ever received a better offer in your life? You haven't, because of what Christ did. He is risen. Let's pray to Him. Our great God, we thank You for such a gracious plan of salvation that has secured for Your glory and for Your people such wonderful blessings because of what Christ has done. Thank You. By Your grace, You have done this. And we pray, O God, that that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that we would understand that power that You have demonstrated which works toward us. Thank You for raising Your Son from the grave. Thank You for the promise that You will raise us as well. And that by grace and through by virtue of the faith which You have given to us, which we have in Him, that we will someday stand in glorified bodies with Your Son. What a glorious salvation. and What a glorious Savior. And we pray, O God, for those who are here who have heard the truth and know the truth and have seen the truth, that they love their darkness, that You would deliver them from that, change their hearts, and cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is our prayer we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.